This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, today here with Graham Evans, an IHS market expert in automotive supply chain and including uh, electrical vehicles and battery technology and all of that. So, so Graham, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks, Hill. Thank you for having me. Yeah, gladly. And, and you know, I, I said at the start, you know, before we hit record, that, that we should disclose to all of our listeners that right now we're, we're sitting digitally in Graham's kitchen uh, and in my guest room, and, and there's some construction on, on the house next door to me, and I think uh, on the uh, unit near Graham's. So, if, and I think two dogs want wandering in the house as well in our respective homes. That's it, right? Yeah, we could have a few additional contributions. Yeah, sensical or nonsensical. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh it's I guess part of the world we live in t- today, and I think we're all getting used to to different types of digital engagements. So it feels very uh, uh I'll say it feels ra- rather comfortable to hang out with you in your kitchen yeah. right now. So hopefully that bodes well for our conversation. <laughs> That's it. Good stuff. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I do want to talk about your um, autology podcast um, mm. toward the end of our recording here. But, but Graham is also a, a host, one of, I think, several hosts of the IHS Market Podcast, Autology, A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y, that I've listened to a few times and, and recommend that everybody listen to as well. Yeah, good stuff. Now, thank you for the plug. Yeah, we were, um, yeah, within this, we're, we're, we're chatting about, yeah, specifically automotive technology and supply chain landscape and, and all of the, you know, all of the, the you know, myriads, you know, changes to the automotive industry at the moment, be it, you know, autonomous driving, connected vehicles, you know, increasingly shared vehicles, and of course, electrified. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's perhaps a bit more specific to that. And, and of course, my focus is electrification, but looking forward to sharing some insight on Energy Sense today. All right. This gives us a, a, a good segue. And I think that, you know, the, the way that we wanted to, to really introduce the, the conversation today was really looking at the electric vehicle, um, kind of the differing strategies for the different car companies. And, you know, some of what, you know, brings this up for for me is when I look at some of these electric vehicle companies, I I see certain companies, and I'll pick on Tesla as building, you know, a a very kind of self-contained electric vehicle where where there's, at least in my understanding, a lot of IP unique to that supply chain, unique to that um, delivered product. Um, And then there are others who, who, from where I sit, look like they're building effectively boxes to move around the technology of other high-tech companies, and then probably another group uh, somewhere in between, um, where they've got some IP unique to their car manufacturing process, um, and some others where they're relying on partners to really bring the electric vehicle kind of space uh, to, to that brand. Is that the right way to think about it? Um, are, are there other strategies, or, or are there other examples that, that we should look at in terms of the different electric vehicle strategy? I mean, it's a it's a great point. It's a good it's a good starting point, and I would say the simple answer to the question is it's a right old mix. 
and I would say that's that's dictated by a lot of different reasons. Some of it is some of it is largely historical, and I guess if we want to call some of the you know the long-standing let's 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 call them conventional car companies, that you know the, the strategies are are you know it's been increasingly platform-driven. That those platforms have been underpinned by an internal combustion engine. You know the idea of these platform strategies would be that you could accommodate different body styles and in principle different propulsion systems but as we move to increasingly electrified architectures of course the fundamental components in the vehicle are changing quite considerably and that's causing the conventional the conventional OEMs to have to think about okay well where can a where can the motor be accommodated where can the battery be accommodated where can all of these additional power electronics components be accommodated and I would say that the investment from an OEM's perspective, the investment in a brand new platform is huge. And the point at which they embark upon that new platform, they they obviously have in their mind a, a period of time over which they hope to make a return on that. And they have to consider, you know, accommodating these different propulsion systems. So that's the way for perhaps the conventional supply, uh, sorry, the conventional OEMs, the, con- the conventional automotive manufacturers. Somebody like Tesla comes along, and of course, you know, they are effectively starting the blank sheet of paper. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not burdened by the internal combustion engine. They've developed their vehicles from scratch to accommodate, um, to accommodate batteries, motors, power electronics in the most effective way, and. Of course, the genius thing that Tesla did that they were kind of the first to do was to to make the decision that the battery is best placed under the floor. And this kind of so-called skateboard configuration, you know, we see the trajectory of the industry now is that increasingly that's what battery electric vehicles will have. They will have a battery stored in the floor. They'll have a motor and either on the rear or the front or both. And then associated power electronics and cooling systems accommodated around that. And, and of course, for a conventional car manufacturer to make the shift to that straight away is, is perhaps hugely risky. I'm going to, you know, I'm an ex Jaguar Land Rover engineer. If I use Jaguar Land Rover as an example, I mean, you know, typically they're making what 750, 800,000 cars a year. They're conventionally, you know, they, they're powered by gasoline and, and diesel powertrains. As they've moved to hybrid powertrains, they've had to find ways to make all of these additional components fit. You know, it's a bit of a mess. It's a battery stored under, you know, maybe a smaller fuel tank and then the battery accommodated there. We've got power electronics components Mm -hmm. underneath the floor. As it is, they decided to go kind of clean sheets of paper on their iPACE products and follow a kind of, you know, a Tesla path with the battery underneath the floor. But I mean, this is a vehicle that, you know, initially the projections were what, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 units. It's not something that they were necessarily going to make a huge profit on. You know, Jaguar Land Rover make a huge amount of money selling Range Rovers, Range Rover Sports, you know, conventional powertrains. This is a vehicle that's maybe 75,000 pounds to buy, but costs around 25,000 pounds to build. You know, the margins are huge on these types of vehicles and they get marked up further when customers select options, etc. So going high volume on electric vehicles is 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 a is a huge challenge for the conventional OEMs and they're trying to stagger their move to these new platforms the tesla-esque battery in the floor platforms in, in order to kind of ride the wave as the volumes increase so just to d- d- define things for, for folks uh, oem is original equipment manufacturer uh, correct yes. and is that just another word for 
car company in this example. Exactly. Yeah. Apologies to jump in with acronyms straight away. No, thank you for thank you for pausing me there. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. So, so, so as we're looking at OEMs compared to, to someone like Tesla, are you having to set up a, a whole new kind of manufacturing process if you're you know putting your engine underneath the car? I mean, it, what, what are the synergies to me as um, we'll, we'll keep picking on Jaguar or whomever that, that, that I'm an OEM and I want to start doing EEB? The cars have four wheels, but, but otherwise, is, is there a lot of synergy to my manufacturing process? I mean, it's a huge change, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge change in terms of the process on the production line, you know, what gets installed in the vehicle when, and, and I mean, you know, I, I, I think back about my own, you know, experience, you know, assessing quality and components on the production line and watching vehicles go to get put together. And, and you're right. I mean, you kind of have this process where the body shell will be prepared. You will have um, components installed on the vehicle. And then there will be this kind of marriage whereby the, you know, the vehicle drops down onto the, onto the combined engine and transmission and then, you know, bolted into place. And then, you know, other peripherals get installed and then maybe the interior later. I mean, fundamentally, yes, there is still that same process and it's the battery that gets installed from below and the motor technology around it. I would say that, you know, production lines in principle could be adapted, you know, the vehicle production line can be adapted quite quite quickly in, in order to facilitate a battery electric vehicle. Of course, there are many differences. I guess the fundamental change is that, you know, you no longer have a separate engine production line, you have a much smaller electric motor production line or potentially you're sourcing electric motors from outside from a tier one supplier and then you are so you're sourcing batteries almost certainly from a tier one supplier in pretty much every case apart from maybe byd in china who do their own cell module pack but is the manufacturing process different yes of course is it possible to 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 retool and and, and reorganize a manufacturing operation to make battery electric vehicles yes what am I, and it's far less labor, correct, to put together an electric vehicle than internal combustion? Yeah, I think this is a huge, I say concern, but this is a huge challenge as we move forward. You know, you look at a country like Germany, which has had huge expertise in internal combustion engine development for many, many years, you know, gasoline, diesel, a huge amount of people employed in the process of, of assembling powertrains. Fundamentally, yes, there's no two ways about it. The powertrain of an electric vehicle with a, a so-called e-axle, electric axle, and, and a battery, it's, it's fundamentally a lot simpler and will require less labor. So, I mean, that's why you would see, you know, that, for example, the IG Metall Union in Germany, you know, lobbying very heavily to ensure that battery manufacture, you know, battery assembly comes to, comes to Germany rather than perhaps, you know, the Asian markets to ensure that, you know, people are employed in the business of assembling batteries when perhaps previously they were employed in the business of assembling engines. So, yeah, there's a big, uh, perhaps a societal and a labor market dynamic to the move to battery electric vehicles that, that is perhaps less understood and um, is, is kind of bubbling under the surface, shall we say. Mm-hmm. What am I then bringing to this if I am an OEM to, to, to keep using the abbreviation? Um, is it distribution? Is that my main competitive advantage relative to if Graham and Hill wanted to start their own, I guess, access to capital? But, but in terms of a, a startup, if it's a completely different process and a completely different setup, beyond the access to capital and the distribution network what and i suppose the brand equity what what, are, what what else am i contributing to this ev development 
um, that, that a startup may not have. Look, I mean, I, I actually, I get asked this question many times and I think that of course, it, it, there's a huge amount of market enthusiasm and, and I would say casual investor enthusiasm for these new battery electric vehicle brands. And I would say a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, obviously Tesla have, has gone from being this very nascent EV startup that's been very exciting to a company with a huge valuation that is, you know, I, I can't remember the latest, but is it, you know, more than the next, you know, the eight biggest car companies by volume put together or something like right. this. And that gives people this perception that, that, you know, the next five new battery electric vehicle companies are all going to become Tesla. And I think that the, the way that I would perhaps counter that or caution that would be to say that actually the process of putting vehicles together, you know, regardless of powertrain, the process of putting vehicles together consistently in large numbers to an acceptable level of quality is very, very hard. You know, there's car companies that have been around for over 100 years that still struggle with certain elements of vehicle quality. And, you know, when we hear Elon talking about production hell with the Model 3, you know, this process of Tesla going, you know, ramping up from, let's say, you know, between 50 and 100,000 units, ramping that up to somewhere in the region of half a million units, that's really hard, you know, to be able to produce those cars at that level of quality and, you know, or, the, or an acceptable level of quality. And what I would say is that, okay, we can all be very excited about the prospects of the, the Rivians and the Lucids and the Workhorse and the, you know, some of these other companies that, I mean, let's face it, many of them have had bumps along the road and continue to have bumps along the road in terms of getting from, let's say, a great looking prototype and, and you know, a few working um, examples of what they look to deliver to even making any vehicles, never mind ramping up scale to a few thousand vehicles. <laughs> You know, that this process in the vehicle development journey is very hard. And, you know, I mean, I would say, again, I mean, in my, my personal experience, I spent, I spent eight years working for Bentley Motors. It's part of the Volkswagen Group. I mean, the Volkswagen Group have spent years refining this four-year process that they typically have to bring a product from conception to market. And the idea that, that someone can say, oh, well, we'll make an electric vehicle and we'll do it in two. I mean, it's quite fanciful, you know, Volkswagen weren't messing around when they made that four-year process. You know, they did that to ensure quality, reliability, durability, and make sure everything is conceived and tested in the right way. And I, I would say that Tesla, by their own admission, have had their challenges with product quality. And actually, some of these established OEMs, these established brands, they're very good at making cars in high numbers to a good level of quality. That's their that's their USP. And, and just because they'll now be electric vehicles, that I wouldn't say that goes away. I think you know, and I think for a lot of customers, quality does remain very important. So it sounds like brand equity and distribution are two of the big differentiators for for these again to OEMs. Hmm. Is it when we're thinking about this? I mean, that are you is one having to really uh, kind of sacrifice uh, the internal combustion engine within their kind of corporate portfolio in order to ramp up um, EEVs in a way that's going to be meaningful? Um, or are you seeing companies that are maybe able to, to be great in both spaces for um, several years? It's a good point. And I think I'll maybe dip back to your previous question, because I think maybe I didn't answer it that great. When you talk about brand equity, I think it's a really important point, because 
when we think about conventional powertrain technology and, and and what that means to a company, it's it's often proven to be a real differentiator, right? You know, you think about what Hellcat means in the minds of certain people in the US, you think about what Mustang means, you think about what AMG means to Mercedes-Benz owners, you know, this this kind of idea that there's a performance derivative and that it, you know, it offers a certain, you know, a certain characteristic of performance. I mean, the reality is with with simpler battery electric vehicles, you know, the powertrain is not going to be so much of a differentiator. You know, the fact that the Tesla Model 3 has the, the you know, the zero to 60 performance that it has, you know, Tesla Model S plays 0 to 60 in less than two seconds. I mean, it, the, the, the level of performance from electric vehicles, this instantaneous acceleration that they have, is going to mean that performance is a bit less of a differentiator. And therefore, when it comes to brand equity, what will that stand for? And I mean, we recently saw a presentation from, from the Stellantis group who have a, this multitude of brands and they're trying to convey the idea that these brands still will count for something very, very different in an electrified future when when most of them are going to be built upon a, a platform, you know, very similar platforms with subtle differences and, and quite a lot of shared powertrain components. So achieving that that brand equity with, with simpler powertrain is going to be harder. When you make the point about, you know, will some of them try to have expertise in one and not the other? I mean, the biggest challenge with that is the direction of the industry. I mean, you know, we sat here in the UK and they're saying by 2030, you know, we'll only have hybrids for sale. You know, if the, the OEMs here are being forced down this trajectory of EV only, and I mean, you know, same, in, I think in California, we're talking 2035, it'll be EV only. We can say that internal combustion engine remains important to OEMs all we like, but if the more and more of these major markets that commit themselves to a time frame of, of phasing out the sale of new vehicles with, with conventional powertrain technology, the more and more OEMs have no choice but to go down perhaps go down this hybrid route and continue to be to be profitable for the next few years, but mindful to make this transition to electric vehicles quickly and with sufficient scale so that these vehicles can be sold profitably. And what, you, you mentioned hybrid, which I think you're referring to more in, in the manufacturing process, but specific to a hybrid vehicle, what becomes of that? Is that, are, are we going full EV and um, the, the hybrid goes the way of the ICE? It's a really good point. And I would say, I mean, for the for the benefit of the users, I mean, there's lots of different terminology thrown around for a hybrid, and I'll, I'll break it down into three. We have what we will call a mild hybrid, uh, a full hybrid, and a plug-in hybrid. So a mild hybrid is just some form of propulsion and assist, doesn't fundamentally differ from the internal combustion engine very much. The full hybrid is what most people would know as the conventional Prius or the mm -hmm. Um, the conventional, yeah, conventional Prius, I think is the best example, maybe Ford Fusion Hybrid as well, whereby the vehicle runs perhaps predominantly in gasoline, but then drops into the, the EV only mode, or sometimes does a mix in the case of the Prius, so that the engine is charging the, the battery and enabling it to run longer in, in, in pure electric mode. Plug-in hybrid obviously infers usually the same, but it has the facility to be plugged in externally and then run for maybe 40, 50 kilometers purely on the battery. So, I mean, yeah, different types of technology, obviously different cost implications for the OEM, the mild hybrid, you know, maybe two to $300 on cost for those additional components gives you like a 10% CO2 saving. Whereas further along, you know, 
plug-in hybrid technology quite expensive, difficult to incorporate all of those components in the vehicle. But at the same time, it's been able to give that you know 50, 60 kilometers of uh, sometimes of, of pure EV range. And on some like for example, the original European um, drive cycle, that means zero grams per kilometer, zero grams per kilometer CO2. So it's effectively legislated like an EV. But mm-hmm. things are changing. Things are changing in terms of the cycle. Um, and and have changed in terms of the cycle. And ultimately, the way in which the OEM sales are considered by propulsion system and whether they can achieve compliance with with CO2 law, the combination of powertrain in their fleet, be it conventional ICE, hybrid, full EV, you know, that dictates whether they will be able to meet their compliance obligations. You know, if you go full fully battery electric vehicle, you'd be fine. If you do a mix of internal combustion engine and battery electric vehicle, you might be fine too. But then there's the hybrid bit in the middle. And obviously they have to balance profitability with this variety of powertrain to get there. Do you see a world where you've got um, kind of a portfolio approach where one brand is going to have, you know, one of three options, a uh, hybrid model, uh, uh, internal combustion engine model, and an electric vehicle model? Or is, is everybody moving into that electric vehicle direction? It's just a, it depends on how fast they move. Or mm-hmm. might there be some pure plays that say, hey, I'm going to double down on this hybrid technology because I, I think that has running room for X number of years or X number of decades. Yeah, sure. Well, you're right. And I would say that is what has been happening so far, you know, and you see the likes of Toyota, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. very Toyota very keen to 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 pin their colors to the mast of, of hybrid technology, very reluctant to embrace an EV. They think that the, the the end game is fuel cell. They they have a very strong belief in fuel cell. And yet the reality is that from a legislative perspective and from a market perception perspective, they've had to look again at battery electric vehicles in order for them to 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 continue to compete. And without going into the very specifics of the regulations in China, they they almost would not be able to 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 sell the quantity of vehicles they would like and meet their obligations for CO2 because of the credit system there, what they're allowed to sell in what quantity with the pure hybrid, because the way it's legislated, they need to have more electrified powertrains. And at this stage, fuel cell isn't 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 a palatable option in terms of profitability or refueling infrastructure. So the legislation in terms of either tailpipe emissions, in terms of CO2 compliance for the OEM's fleet and city bands is what's really forcing OEMs down this fully battery electric vehicle route. I think that would be the best way I could summarize it. Okay. Well, one one of the so I guess, you know, the, the hybrid, the, the, the Prius idea has been around with us for a while. And one of the great things about that is one can drive from, you know, Jacksonville to L.A. and stop and get gas and, and refuel. And, you know, you can stay in a low emissions vehicle, you know, all the way across the interstate. That um, There seems to be, you know, a, a bit of a chicken or egg dilemma uh, with some of the electric vehicles in terms of the charging. And again, from from where I sit, which obviously is not as close as you, if I'm a car company, I want as many charging stations out there as possible in order for me to double down on electric vehicles. If I'm a charging company, I want the electric vehicles to be there to be sure there's going to be a market for my charging station. What type of coordination or, I mean, are folks just kind of staring at each other saying, all right, you do it first? How, How should we look at this? 
It's a great question. It's a and it's a big question. There's a lot to it. I'd say there's a lot of regional differences. You know, different countries taking different approaches, different OEMs, different car manufacturers taking different approaches to this as well. And I would say, if we take someone like Volkswagen, I mean, it's a it's a it's a specific situation in the US because of the the history around Dieselgate and them having to fund uh, through the Electrify America campaign, having to effectively fund the rollout of of, of battery electric vehicle um, charge infrastructure but ultimately i think the best way i would i would answer the question is to say that we had a, we had a conversation with a major u.s automotive manufacturer a while ago about charging infrastructure and i said to them i said well we need more of it of course we need more of it and they said well yeah we do need more of it but what we need is we need our customers to have the right charging experience in the right place depending on where they are and that sounded like a kind of a marketing comment, you know, straight from the straight from the voice of someone working in marketing. But actually, there's a lot of truth in the matter and the fact that at the moment we have a lot of gasoline stations around our nations. And that's because the only way to to refuel your your conventional internal combustion engine is at the gas station. Well, actually, with a battery electric vehicle, there's a multitude of ways that we can we can we can charge that vehicle. And a lot of the charging for the vast majority of people can be done at home and will actually be cheaper to be done at home. If you have somewhere around or inside your property, you can plug in, you can charge your vehicle overnight. And for the vast majority of electric vehicle adopters to date, that will cover 98% of your usage, you know, and, and there's some very competitive rates. It's fundamentally going to be cheaper in terms of ownership um, to, to, to charge that vehicle at home. It will be cheaper than an internal combustion engine. Let's take out purchase price for a second. Mm -hmm. But Ultimately, so far, for especially for early EV adopters, I would say that they have they have done the majority of their charging at home and will continue to. At the same time, for perhaps a more cautious second wave of EV adopters, or for people who live in the urban environment who don't have access to a charge point at home, I would say that the importance of public charging infrastructure is is heightened. You know, to and, and I think a bit of that is even just. You know, we as consumers, if we can't, if we don't know where the charging stations are in the vicinity to us, well, why would we think it's a feasible idea to have an electric vehicle? I mean, I live in a street here in London. There's two electric vehicle charge points on my street, publicly available. You know, there's now three ID3s on my street. There's four Teslas. You know, there's a couple of Nissan Leafs. You know, people, I think, are, are more willing to embrace it and adopt it because they see the, the, the readily available charging infrastructure. At the same time, the other bit to, be, to, to convey clearly is about speed. So speed in terms of charging is, mm -hmm. is dictated by the, the power that the vehicle can receive. And, and of course, you know, the dwell time, how long do you stay still? So as it is in our internal combustion engine vehicle, we could probably add somewhere between three, four, 500 miles of, of, of range through a three minute stop at the gas station. As it is, industry leading technology at the moment would probably dictate that you could charge something like a Porsche Taycan in a 10 minute fast charge with the right equipment at the right publicly available um, DC fast charge station, you might be able to add maybe 150, 200 kilometers of range in that in that 10 minute stop. So even with the industry leading tech at the moment, it's still a third or a quarter as good as filling up with gas, right? Broadly speaking, there's a few nuances to that, but broadly speaking. So actually it's the case that 
you know, if you're say, you know, you're a fleet user, you know, you 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 drive three, four hundred kilometers every day, um, you're on the road a lot. You need to, you know, you don't have time to wait, a, you know, half an hour, three quarters of an hour, for your for your car to be recharged. Perhaps it's the case that that the EV isn't quite there for you, and you're waiting for, you know, it's not ready for you yet, you know, and you mm-hmm. need to, you're going to wait for that charging technology and the, isn't the charging technology to force the power into the battery, but also the battery being able to receive that high power, and um, you're waiting for that te- that technology to improve before you're perhaps prepared to. Uh, accept a change in your lifestyle or your pattern or your your routine to accommodate the vehicle so who if, if we're and i imagine many are uh, awaiting that technology if we're looking at it and we talked uh, on this podcast several weeks ago looking at retail gas stations and there's a play by you know some of the brand equity you know shell and others to to try to do more with electric vehicle charging uh, we, we've talked about car manufacturers here you know, if, if you're putting on your kind of future glasses here, are, are these charging stations that, that we see on the roads in the future, are they going to be owned by the Teslas and the Toyotas of the world? Or are they going to be owned by the Shells and Totals of the world? Or is it going to be a whole new core competency for neither of those two? I think it's, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, I would say that if I'm a major oil producer right now with an with an abundance of capital, you know, you look at someone like Shell. I mean, they're making very you know strategic decisions to to acquire companies or invest in companies that have this um, this this technology. You know, Shell have acquired New Motion in the Netherlands, you know, leading provider of charging infrastructure in Europe. They've also acquired. Ubitricity is a company that invests in lamppost charging. You know, in, in a way, they they can afford to have a you know to dip their toe into these different markets, perhaps in case that technology takes off, or or they're gonna you know as EV volume ramps up, they they have their investment in a DC fast charge company and they can start to make the switch or the you know start to adapt. So this this all certainly to me makes a huge amount of sense and they will continue to go in that direction because in, i guess in principle they have to future proof their business you know if there's not if the, if we all move to ev there's not going to be the oil demand you know some of these huge oil companies you know that have been been hugely profitable businesses for a long time you know they um their, their business model is certainly under threat so i do see that you know the the ones that adapt quicker the ones that invest in the best EV related charging technology and think about the best way to roll out that technology are going to be well placed. At the same time, I think the layout of the conventional gas station as we see it today perhaps doesn't allow for that additional dwell time that is and will still be required for quite a while. You know, we have a new purpose built EV charging station here in the in the UK where I think there's there is there's either 12 or 14 bays for vehicles to charge. And you know, the, the layout is different. They account for the extra dwell time. There's different facilities, you know, in order to facilitate people coming in and out in, you know, bearing in mind the longer dwell time. So I think the, the shape of the gas station forecourt will change to a degree. And we see maybe even here in the in, in Europe, you know, Fastnet is an example of a company that is a, you know, a, a DC fast charge provider started from scratch. You know, they've developed their own their own stations and let's call it 
at a given location, there are maybe four stations that are laid out differently. Um, they've they've done very well so far. They have individual locations that are, are turning a profit. You know, they're getting enough charges on a daily basis to turn a profit. So I think it will be a mix. I think it will be a mix of the oil and gas companies who are investing in charging infrastructure, as well as some of these newer players, perhaps with further merger acquisition for later down later down the track. Do the OEMs, do the car companies themselves really want to play in this space? I would suggest no, they don't. But at the same time, they can't afford, you know, if you're Volkswagen and you've invested however many billions in the development of electric vehicles, it's not feasible for them to let electric vehicles fail because of a lack of charging infrastructure. You know, they have to, you know, they've they, in, in the US, obviously, they have Electrify America. In Europe, they have a similar um, scheme called Ionity, which is a partnership with several different OEMs in Europe to, to install the necessary DC fast charge infrastructure. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's the case that they are investing. They're helping facilitate the, the rollout of the appropriate charging infrastructure. I don't think that they want to necessarily run it, operate it, own it themselves, um, but it has to be there. So it, uh, one of the other examples that, that you mentioned to, to me uh, a couple weeks ago when we first started talking about this, what was a a battery uh, swapping uh, idea, I guess, and, and I think it was San Francisco with uh, Nissan Leaf and maybe Uber or Lyft or something where to, to get around that charging question that there were what would seem to me kind of a, a almost a hub and spoke type model where I could pull in with my leaf that I have decharged and a machine can put a fresh battery in my car, which is going to be a lot faster than me waiting there to, to have it charged. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and that model perhaps expanding beyond the location that it was it's being tested? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, so in principle, I'm sure most of us can appreciate you know, the idea that swapping the battery rather than waiting for it to charge mm-hmm. is in principle quite a nice way of getting away from this problem of downtime and delay. And, you know, the idea that we could just pull into a gas station, the car could go on some kind of ramp and we could swap the uh, the battery over in less than, let's say, less than five, you know, well, it could even be, you know, two, three minutes, right? I mean, what a great idea. And and I would say that this has been this has been tried and tested for for some time. There was an organization called Better Place who tried to champion this in the early 2000s in Israel. At the same time, it didn't really take off. And I would say that more recently in China, for example, we have Neo who have decided mm-hmm. to go down the route of offering uh, battery swapping technology for their vehicles, kind of using it almost as like a unique selling point, almost like a premium feature. You know, the idea that they, in the same way as Tesla went and installed their own DC fast charge stations, Neo will go and install their own battery swapping stations, and that would be kind of like a premium facility for for their for their customers. At the same time, the the biggest challenge that we have here in the in the light passenger vehicle space is commonality of batteries, commonality yeah. of underfloor platform architecture, etc., and also I guess inherent competition in the battery space. So, the automotive industry has not come to the decision to align on a common battery size, spec, form factor, etc., and as a result of that, you know. 
it's not probably feasible that the entire industry will go into some kind of battery swapping model. At the same time, if we take the example of a fleet, if we take the example of an Uber, for example, you know, if Uber was to go and buy a whole bunch of one particular type of EV, and they were to then um, decide, okay, on these particular EVs, we're gonna we're gonna offer battery swapping. You know, then at that point, you could envisage a situation where perhaps around San Francisco, there will be three or four different places where the battery swapping could take place. The Uber driver comes in, they swap the battery, and they're back out on the road again. And I mean, you know, take that one step further forward. In a, in a kind of autonomous future, right? I mean, the idea that this this Uber EV could be running without a driver, it mm-hmm. could come in, swap a battery. I mean, you're looking at nearly kind of 24-hour operation, right? You know, in principle, there's no downtime. There's no need for the driver to have a rest. There's no need to delay to to top up the gas tank or or swap a. You know, it, it, it's it, it's a simple case of. Uh, there's, there's almost no human intervention required, right? So uh, the, the the name of the company that's kind of doing this, you, you said it's with, with um, Nissan Leaf, and, and who's the who, who are the others involved? Yeah, so the um, the company that I'm referring to is a company called Ample, who are a Silicon Valley startup. You know, they're based in the Bay Area, and effectively what they're doing is they're you know they're purchasing Nissan Leafs without the battery. So they buy a fleet of Nissan Leafs and they put their own swappable battery technology into that into that Nissan Leaf, and then with that you have the facility to run these as a as a fleet and and avoid the kind of the downtime associated with EV charging. So you know it's just a few minutes to swap uh, these batteries over, and and I mean this you know they've had a huge amount of investment. I think that. The struggles that have, that have been seen with battery swapping in the past, getting OEMs to, um, getting the car companies to align on, on, on form factor, et cetera, they will remain. And I think that people perceive in the car industry, you know, regulators perceive this as a kind of maybe stifling competition. If we align on one particular technology, one particular form factor, one particular shape of battery, one particular cell module type, mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, be constrained by the physical size and the swappability of the battery pack. So that's not really proceeding. It is proceeding, in, interestingly, in the in the motorcycle industry. An agreement was recently signed by by major motorcycle manufacturers to agree on a common um, size standard of of battery pack. And of course, you, I'm sure we can all envisage, you know, in a market like India, where you know there's a huge amount of rickshaws. You know, I mean, the swappable battery makes absolute sense for for something like a rickshaw, given the you know the driving profile, the use case, and the uh, the application there. But for light passenger vehicles, I don't think we're ever going to get alignment on the on the battery and the, and its and its size and shape. But it would seem to have a lot of opportunity on a fleet basis. And you think about uh, Southwest Airlines and they buy the same plane every time. And, and that way everybody knows how to work on the plane. They've always got you know the, the, the parts in stock or whatever, whenever there's a problem at an airport. Mm-hmm. And if I am Uber or Lyft or even rental car companies, um, that, that I could you know, just buy that same thing and be that there'd be a real value in having that battery exchange process to to my uh, driver or traveler if we're in the autonomous world. Yeah, I would say it's, I mean, 
rental car company, maybe it's a bit more of a challenge because you have you you don't have predictable routes, you know, and you have lots of people mm. making different journeys, different types of journeys, different durations, etc. I think with the you know the the relatively predictable nature of 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 an Uber fleet in and around a particular city, you know, the the number of the number of miles they travel a day is probably relatively consistent. The routes that they take and where they go probably relatively consistent. I think that helps. Um, make the case for a swappable battery in this in, in the, this business model um but yeah for, for for conventional consumers or people doing quite with with quite diverse requirements i think that's where the you know the external charge and the and the and the public dc fast charging yeah. will remain critical yeah so it's more of a b2b type model than b2c mm -hmm. um exactly well, so, so, so we're basically out of time here, and I, and I did want to spend a little bit of time on Autology to just to, 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 to re-mention um, that. You, you, you put that out. It, it's a weekly basis now, right? Yeah, well, we, we put a new podcast out on a on broadly speaking on a weekly basis. Yes, we're, we're covering a multitude of, of topics across the automotive supply chain. So this could be, you know, this could be interiors, this could be electrified powertrain, this could be autonomous vehicles, connected car. And, and I would say it's a mix of, you know, us IHS market folks talking amongst ourselves about what we think are the hot technologies and, and what's important. And also, you know, myself, I mean, just we've just um, launched a podcast day yesterday where we're, we're chatting with one of the major tier one suppliers of, of, of e-axle technology for electric vehicles and, and, and getting the, the opinions, the thoughts of, of industry leaders on how this is going to evolve. So, so yeah, we'd, we'd really encourage you to check out Autology on, um, on the various platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, et cetera, and, um, and have a listen. All right, something to listen to as people are driving their electric vehicles. Uh, uh, around town or waiting at a charging station for it to refuel. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, exactly. All right, and we got through this without dog barks or co co contractors. So, so uh, Graham, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to, to our doing this uh, again sometime soon. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Hill. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.